Well, good morning. Um, my name is Dan. Our, our pastor, Pastor Kevin, has been away on vacation this week. And so he asked me if I would uh, be willing to, to step in and, and, and preach this morning and share the message. So I was um, honored to have the opportunity to do that. Um, if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 12, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, um, if you want to just raise your hand, I know we have um, one of our ushers in the back, Larry, would be happy to get you one um, if you need one of those this morning. But as we begin, um, you know, I want to just talk about questions, because that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. In, in Mark chapter 12, there's a series of questions between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. And, you know, in our lives, we are bombarded with questions all the time. And a lot of times there's some really important questions that, that come our way. You know, some of them are questions that we ask other people, you know. Some of us, at some point in our life, we're going to ask somebody, you know, will you marry me? That's a pretty big question. Or you're going to have somebody ask you that. You know, that, that, those are important questions. You know, sometimes they're, they're important questions that, that you're going to have to answer. You know, what are you going to do with your life? How are you going to pay for that? You know, well, different kind, of, different kind of things like that. But sometimes there are questions that come our way that when we, when we hear it, when we have to answer it, we don't realize how important or how significant that question is until a lot later in our lives. Um, in my life, one of the most important questions that I ever answered was when I was in college. And... It was, I think it was the middle to the end of my, uh, my, I guess it would have been my second year down at, at Corbin University. And I was in the youth ministries uh, program, and the director of our youth ministries department came up to me and asked me, Hey, Dan, would you be willing to interview for this internship? And I, I hadn't done an internship. I was interested in possibly doing that, working under, um, you know, somebody else. And so I said, Yeah, sure. I'll go do that. And I, I walked into the room. I knew nothing about it. My, my outlook, my attitude, and the whole thing was I'm just going for the experience of the interview, for the opportunity to do it. And, and I walked in the room, and there were, I think there were about five or six um, people sitting in there. One of them, the guy who was the youth pastor that I was interviewing to work under, was a guy named Dave Tompkins. Um, some of you might know him. He owns a Northtown Coffee uh, here in town. And he was working as a youth pastor at, at that point in time. And I was, so I was interviewing with him. And I ended up actually getting the position as, as an intern to work under Dave. And got some really valuable experience in that six months. But the most important thing that happened during that six months is that actually ended up being the, the place where I met uh, the young lady who would be in, in the future, about seven, eight years down the road, end up becoming my wife. And I had no idea... You know, that that was where that whole um, scenario was going to play out and how that was going to end up. It just seemed like a totally, um, you know, insignificant question at the time. But it ended up, you know, really changing the course of my life in, in so, so many ways. So, you know, for each one of you, there have been important questions that you've had to answer and that you're probably going to continue to have to answer um, as your life goes on. And you may or may not realize at the time you answer them what the significance of those is. But this morning we're going to look at a series of questions that I think grow in significance as we go, go through the passage that Jesus had an interaction with the, the religious leaders during the week before he was crucified. 
So before we dive into Mark chapter 12, um, let's just spend a couple minutes praying and just asking God to prepare our hearts. Father God, I just want to come to you this morning and pray and ask that you would just communicate your truth this morning to everyone that is here. Lord, you know that the message that you want to convey, you know what it is that you need to communicate to each of our hearts. And I I pray that it would be your spirit communicating that, that you would keep me and my, um, you know, fumbling and stammering or whatever it might be, that none of that would be a distraction from what you want to do and what you want to communicate this morning. So just fill this place with your presence. We know that you are here with us. Protect us and guard our hearts and our minds so that we can not just hear your truth, but that our lives can be changed and transformed by the truth that we're going to see from your word this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're in Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at um, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, down through verse um, 45. I'm going to break it up in about four sections this morning. And the first one is the, the first question that Jesus is asked um, by the Sadducees. And it's in verses 18 down through 27. And it says this, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So a few things that I want to point out from that passage as we look at the the question that that they asked him. Um, the first is that the, the people that came and asked him the question, it says that Jesus was approached by the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees were the equivalent of the religious liberals of the day. They didn't believe. I mean, the, the irony of this question is that the Sadducees who are asking him this question about the resurrection, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're asking him a question, not even believing that what they're asking is something that's going to happen, something that's true. And as a matter of fact, they, you know, for, for the Jews at that time, the majority of the Jews took the, the Old Testament, you know, from, from, from Genesis through Malachi. That was what they considered to be the scriptures at that time. But the Sadducees, this group that Jesus was, was talking to at that time, they only considered the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
For them, that was all they considered to be valid as the Scriptures. That was all that they thought about. And so these guys come and they ask Jesus a question. And in verses 19-23, they outline their question about this lady who die, or who, who gets married and her husband dies. She has no kids, so she marries you know, his brother and so on and so on through all seven. Basically what they're doing is they're taking this story from this ancient Jewish book called Tobit. And, and in the, the Jewish book of, of Tobit, there's a righteous woman who's named Sarah. And she has seven husbands. And each of those husbands are killed by a demon. And so the Sadducees use that story as the basis for this question about what's going to happen in this resurrection that they don't believe in. So they're not asking him a question because they're legitimately interested in knowing what the answer is. The only reason the Sadducees have come to Jesus to ask this question is because they're trying to trap him. They're trying to discredit him. They want to prove to the, the people that have come and begun to follow Jesus, they want to prove to them that Jesus is not worthy to be seen as you know, a, a theological or any kind of a, a religious leader. They want, to, they want to discredit him and you know, undermine his, his authority in the situation. So that's why they ask the question. And they say, so, so the law says, you know, if this happens, and she should marry the brother. And the law that they're referring to comes from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, verses, uh, chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. It's going to be up on the screen. Let me just read it to you real quick so you kind of know what they're talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of a dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she shall bear shall succeed to the name of, the dead, of his dead brother, that his name shall not be blotted out of Israel. And, so, and that was all about you know, how the family possessions and the inheritance and the land and those types of things were going to be passed down generationally um, in the nation of Israel. And so that's the law that they're referring back to. And so the Sadducees take this extreme example of this lady who has a husband and then he dies and the seven brothers and they all die. She doesn't ask any of children, and they ask Christ. So what happens? In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And they have come, and they're doing this, and they're trying to discredit Christ. But what Christ does is really show, and he's going to do it by referring back to the one small part of the Old Testament Scriptures that they even believe. And he does the opposite. He does that to them. He discredits them and demonstrates how poorly they know their scriptures by showing the holes in their theology and their lack of understanding. So first thing he does is he deals with their misunderstanding of the, the concept of the resurrection. I mean, obviously, if you don't believe in something, then you don't understand what it is. And they didn't believe in the understanding, in, in the resurrection. They didn't understand it. And Christ says that that's the problem. The flaw is with your hypothetical situation. Is that in the resurrection... When people have been resurrected, there's no longer any need for marriage. Because there's not going to be death, there's no need to carry on, you know, the, the human race. There's not going to be death continuing on. There's not going to be any need for people to be married or to be given in marriage. And Jesus says, so in that respect, when people are raised, they will be like the angels. Now, and don't misunderstand what Jesus says, because some people will read that and, and have the misunderstanding that Jesus is saying that when we are resurrected... 
that we're going to become angels. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He says, you're not going to become angels. We're going to be like the angels and that there's, we're, there's not going to be any marriage. There's no need for marriage in, in, that, in that setting after the resurrection. And the second thing he does to, to prove the, to the, re, the Sadducees that there is a resurrection is he goes back to a verse from, from, like we said, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he goes back to a verse out of that small section of the Old Testament that they believe. And he finds a verse there that proves that there is a resurrection. That when people die, if they trusted God and they have put their faith in him, that they will be resurrected. They will be brought back to life. And he goes to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, um, verse 6. And this is where God, if you remember the story um, from Exodus, the, there, there's, it's the story of Moses and, and the Exodus, the, the bringing the people uh, of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt. And at the beginning of the book, you know, Moses, he was, you know, if you remember the story of Moses, he was in the, his, his mother um, had him, and at that time the Pharaoh in Egypt was, was killing all the babies because the, the Jews were growing in number and they were afraid that there were going to be too many of them. So, you know, his mother, so that Moses doesn't get killed, you know, puts him in the basket and sets it out on, on the river, and he's discovered by the, the, the Pharaoh's daughter. And, you know, so he ends up being raised in, in the house of, of Pharaoh. But being a Jew, there's the conflict because the Jewish people are, are, are captives there. And so eventually he sees uh, one of the Egyptians beating one of the Jews, and he ends up killing that Egyptian. And because he does that, Moses has to flee the land of Egypt. And so he's living for 40 years in, in the land of Midian. And during the time that he's living there, God comes to him because that's not where he was going to leave Moses in Midian. He has this mission for Moses to go and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so when God appears to Moses, he does so in the form of a burning bush. And when God is speaking to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Listen to how God introduces himself. Because Moses asked him, well, who are you? Who do I tell people that you are? And, and God says to Moses, and he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. So he quotes from the book of Exodus, one of the five books that they believe. And he says, when God talks to Moses, he doesn't say, I was their God. He doesn't refer to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the past tense. He says, I am their God. These men still live because they have been brought back to life. They have been resurrected. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am still their God. So Jesus says, you know, the resurrection is true. Your premise, your story, your belief, your thoughts are false. And, and he discredits them and he answers their question in a way that essentially kind of sends them on their way. And they, they go and they have nothing more to say. But now, seeing how Jesus answered that first question, there's another man who comes. A guy who's a scribe. He had been one of the teachers of the law. And so he comes and he says to Jesus, well, I have a question for you as well. And that's the next question we're going to look at in verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So that, that's the, the, the second question that, that is asked of Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer is the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. And the, the, the purpose of this question is that that was one of the debates during that day and age. Is that the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, what they would love to do is to sit around and debate and to discuss these kinds of, of, of theoretical, theological questions. And after spending seven years in Bible college, I can tell you, it still happens today. You know, guys sitting in Bible college, we love to sit around the dorm and, and talk about those kinds of, you know, maybe not this one specifically, but other kinds of theological questions. I spent many, many late nights, you know, discussing, you know, well, what would have happened if, say, Eve ate the apple, but Adam didn't? What would God have done then? Just stop and think about that someday if you want something to just wrestle with. Um, I won't tell you what the conclusions we came to. You can figure that out on your own. But um, that's a whole other probably message that we're not going to get into. But those kind of dis- debates and discussions went on all the time in, in, in the Jewish culture, among the Jewish religious leaders. And there were different groups of leaders that, that held up different commands. It's like, well, this is what I believe the greatest command is, or this is what I believe the greatest command is. And, I mean, it had gone so far that they'd gone, and they had gone through the Old Testament, and they had read through the, the whole, um, their whole scriptures, the Old Testament, and they, they counted every command that they found there. I mean, we look at, we think of the commandments from the Old Testament, we think of, you know, the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't, don't commit adultery, and all those. But they went through and they counted 613 commands that were given from God to us. And they didn't just count how many there were. They then took those and, and they broke them down and they said, well, there's 248 out of those 613. 248 of them are positive commands. Things that God says, you need to do this. And there were 365 of them that were negative commands. Things that you don't do. And they knew from reading the Old Testament that God's, you know, that God's will for us was that we would follow these commands. But they're looking at all 613 of these and they're saying, that's too many. Nobody can keep all 613. So, so they, they went and they broke it down even further. And they broke it down to what they considered you know, heavy commands and, and light commands. The heavy commands were, were the commands that were like, these, these are the biggies. These are the really important ones. These are the ones you've got to do this if you, know, you want to have a relationship with God. The light ones, you know, those are, you know, you can do it if you want, but... If you break that one, it's not that big a deal. That's kind of how they broke it down. And, you know, and different ones kind of had different ways of breaking that down, of saying these are the heavy ones, these are the light ones, these are the ones you really need to follow, these are the ones we don't have to worry about um, so much. And the problem with that is that doesn't line up with what the Bible tells us. The book of James, chapter 2, verse 10 doesn't say it's okay to keep just some, and if we do that, we'll be okay. James says in, chapter, in James 2.10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
if we're going to be guilty before God and worthy of death and judgment and hell, it just requires breaking one commandment, one lie, one lustful look, you know, stealing one grape from the grocery store, whatever it is. It just requires that one thing, and we are guilty before God and people who are in need of a Savior. So, so, so the scribe comes to Jesus, and he brings them into this debate. And he says, you know, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus' answer in verses 37 and 38 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that those two things sum up the whole law. Love God with everything that we have, with everything that we are, with every part of our being, and love other people. Love other people as we love ourselves. Jesus says if we do those two things, we're going to fulfill the law. I, I, I challenge you, take those two thoughts, love God and love other people, and go back and look at the Ten Commandments this afternoon. And tell me if that doesn't sum up what those Ten Commandments are. You can break it down. The first four commandments fall under the idea of loving God with everything that we are. And the last six fall under the heading of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Love God and love other people. That's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. To love God and to love others. That's the essence of being a follower of Christ. And I'm, I'm going to set that aside. So just hang on to that thought because we're going to kind of come back to that at the end because I want to get to this last question. But the last question isn't a question that the religious leaders asked Jesus. It's a question that Jesus asked the religious leaders. And you might look at this passage and say, Dan, you know, I, I don't see Jesus asking any questions there. That's because Mark just, in, in, in his parallel account, Mark records just a part of, of the dialogue because he talks about it in verse 35. And, says, and, Jesus, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, you know, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? But if you flip back, um, if you want to flip back a few pages to the book of Matthew, Matthew gives us a little more detail about what happened. Um, in the in the interaction and where it went from the, the two questions that Jesus was asked. Matthew chapter twenty-two. If you look at Matthew chapter twenty-two, you see verse forty-one. Because right before that, the two passages we just looked at, with the question about the resurrection and the question about the greatest commandment, those are both recorded in in verses you know twenty-three uh, down through forty of of Matthew twenty-two. But then in Matthew 40, in, in chapter 40, or verse 41 of Matthew 22, you see that Jesus turns the tables now on the Pharisees. Matthew 22, 41, and now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So Jesus asks them a question. 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And basically, Jesus is asking the Pharisees the same question he'd asked his disciples a few months ago. You know, if you remember a while ago, Kevin was preaching from Mark chapter 8 about when the disciples were up in Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. And Jesus came to the disciples and said, you know, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. Then he really got to the point and said, well, but who do you say that I am? And if you remember Peter's answer, it was, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is basically asking the Pharisees the same question, but because they're coming from a different place, the disciples had begun to understand that and know who Jesus was. The Pharisees were on the opposite end of the spectrum. They didn't believe anything that Jesus was saying. They did not believe that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. They thought he was this false teacher that they needed to put down and that they needed to discredit. And so he has, has to frame the question a little bit differently. Instead of asking him, you know, what do you think about me? He tries to make it broader. Just what do you think about the Christ? And, you know, when we hear that question, what do you think about the Christ? Probably for us today in the 21st century, we all are going to just jump to, well, of course, they knew. When you ask, what do you think about the Christ? We know that he's talking about himself. But do you realize that Christ wasn't, we always call him and talk about, you know, well, Jesus Christ. You know, he's our Lord. He's our Savior. But Jesus Christ wasn't the way in that day and age that people typically would have referred to him, especially not people who didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Christ was not part of his given name. He was called, his given name was Jesus. Christ is a a title that denotes who he was. Christ is is the word for the the Messiah, the anointed one, the the, the chosen one. And so when he says, what do you think about the Christ? Jesus is asking, what do you think about the one who's going to come, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the chosen one? So it wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been immediately thinking, you know, what do we think about this man, Jesus, standing in front of us? They would have been thinking more in the broader. For them, this was just another in this series of theological questions that they're talking about and, and, that, um, and, and that they were debating. And so Jesus asked the question. The Pharisees um, give their answer. And it, it was obvious. You know, well, he's the son of David. Of course he's the son of David. Because there are any number of scriptures from the Old Testament that, that, that would have taught that, that would have taught that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David, that he would be an earthly, physical descendant of, of King David. And he was going to come through that line. So then Christ springs the second part of, of the, the question and really the, the thing that he's going to use to drive home the point about who he is on them. And that's in verses 36 and 37 where he quotes from Psalm 110. And Jesus says, And David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. So how is he his son? 
So the Jews knew Psalm 110. They would have said, that's a psalm that we know David is talking about the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that's going to come. And so Jesus says, well, if the Messiah is just a a human son of David, how is it that David refers to the the Christ as his Lord? Because Jesus wants the, the Pharisees to begin to understand that if he is the Messiah, if he is the Lord, he's more than just a human Savior. Because for the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, that's what they were looking for. They were looking for this human Messiah, this human Savior that God was going to send, that was going to overthrow you know, Rome and, and, and drive them out of Israel and, and set up an earthly and establish an earthly kingdom right then, there in, in the nation of Israel. They wanted another earthly king. And Jesus is trying to help them understand that your concept of what the Messiah is, your concept of the Christ, is so small. What God has in mind for the Messiah is so much greater than that. It's so much beyond just, you know, physical being set free to a spiritual freedom and being set free from sin and and death. So that's what Jesus is trying to make the point of. And and the way that he makes this point, by quoting from from David, he says, the Lord has said to my Lord, and and another thing that we we miss as we read this in, in the English today, is that the word for Lord there, he actually, David, when he wrote this, and David didn't just come up with this on his own, Jesus himself says that David in the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words. The Lord said to my Lord. And when he wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, he uses two different words for Lord. The first word that he uses for Lord is the word Yahweh or or Jehovah, which is the Hebrew name for God the Father. Always, consistently, throughout the Old Testament. Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah refers to God the Father. And so he's saying, so God the Father said to my Lord, and that second word for Lord is the word Adonai which is a word that, again, is used to refer to God, but not necessarily God the Father. And in this case, it's referring to God the Son. So he's saying, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand, come and sit in this place of authority beside me. So Jesus is saying, David wouldn't refer to somebody who was only his human descendant as Lord using a word that is only used of God. So in essence, Jesus is declaring himself here in this passage to the Pharisees that he is fully God and fully man. That he is the one who's not just worthy to be a a ruler on earth, but worthy to be our Lord and our King and our Savior, that that is who He is. He's so much more than just a human descendant of David. And and I think as Jesus was doing this, He was trying to give one last chance 
to these Pharisees, these guys who had been hounding him and questioning him and that he knew eventually were going to try to kill him in just a matter of days from now. He was trying to take this one last opportunity to allow their eyes to be open, to see who he really was and to proclaim the truth of what he was about and why he was here. He wanted them to see that. That he was not merely a human son of David, but he was the son of God. And that's what the disciples realized back when Jesus asked them the question, you know, who do you say that I am? And they realized you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And and this morning, that's really where we're going to kind of leave things, is on that question. Because Jesus asks each of us the same question. Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that he was just a good teacher? Do you believe that he was somebody who was, you know, this mythical figure? Or do you really believe that he was who he said he was? That he was fully God? That he was fully man? That God sent him here to this earth to live a perfect life and to give his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. And that if we trust him and we give him our lives, that we can have the relationship with God that we were designed for. Because if you believe that, it has to change everything about who you are. I mean, go back and look at the question that Jesus asked. What's the most important commandment? If we truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and he said he is our Lord, the one we're supposed to give our entire lives to, if we truly believe that, then we're going to follow the greatest commandment, to love God with everything that we are, every single part of our being. And love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we're called to do. How you answer that question, who do you say that Jesus is, changes everything. Because it's not just an easy answer. We can't just say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Yeah, you know, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to give my life to him. And then we just go on living our lives as if nothing has changed. When you give your life to Christ, everything changes. Everything in your life, your priorities, the things you value, the things you invest your life in, your time in, your money in, the choices you make, it all changes. Because if if Jesus is our Lord, we're going to freely Give Him everything that we have, everything that we are, and we're not going to hold anything back. And that's why I think this chapter concludes with a story that should hit each and every one of us right where we live. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse, starting in verse 41 down through verse 44. And as He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums. And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, 
This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So try to picture that scene if you would. They're, they're, they're in the, the courtyard of the temple. And in the temple, there were actually about 11 different of these offering boxes. There were like, I think it was seven of them that were like offering boxes that were designed for specific things. And they were labeled. You know, the, the offering that goes in this box, you know, if, if you're coming to give a, a turtle dove offering, you put your offering in there. If you're coming to make a contribution or an offering for this, you put it there. But there were four specific offering boxes that were the voluntary offering boxes. If you had something over and above what you were by the law required to give, that you wanted to give, you went and you put it in one of these four offering boxes that were located in different spots. And, and these offering boxes were kind of unique. They were probably gold-plated boxes. And then on the top, in the corners, they had these, I guess the best way you can describe them is they're kind of like horns, almost shaped like, like a trumpet that you would put your money in. And you, as you poured it in, those were kind of plated with either gold or brass. And so the money, if you, if you wanted to, you could put your money in in a way that would probably make a lot of noise. And so you can probably imagine what was happening. is the, These rich guys who had lots, who probably wanted the attention, would go and they'd take their big money bag and they would, they would dump it into the, the, the horn, the, the, the trumpet the, that was coming out of the offering box in such a way that as the money's going down, there's this loud clamor and, and clatter as their coins are, are tumbling down into the offering box. And people would turn and look and be just in awe. Wow, look how much that person gave. Look at what they've done. And, and there's, this is going on at the different offering boxes. And Jesus is sitting back and watching that. And then just kind of silently in the corner, trying to do it in probably a way that's really inconspicuously, is, is, is this widow who has literally probably just barely a penny to her name. It, the, the, the literal words that are used here for the, the coins that she gave are the, and we talk about them as the widow's mites, but I mean, it was really, it was like a fraction of um, a denarius. A denarius was like the common um, Roman money term of the day, and the denarius was one day's wage. The coins that she gave totaled like 142nd of a denarius. So, I mean, it wasn't even what she would have got paid for working like, 15 minutes during the day. And that was all the money she had. That was probably all the money she had to even try to buy herself food to live on for the next day. But her love for God was so great that she took these two coins that most everybody else in the temple would have probably seen as worthless almost and meaningless. And she take them and I just, I imagine her just kind of gently placing them there so as not to draw any attention to herself. And letting them slide down into the offering box. But Jesus noticed. Jesus said, she has given all that she has. That is the very definition embodied of someone loving God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. She loved God with everything she had. And she gave everything. She probably just planned to go home and lay down on her bed and die. And we don't know what happened to her. We don't know if God chose to take care of her. We don't know if 
you know, she did end up going, we don't know what happened. But Jesus said that she gave out of her poverty more than everyone else. All these rich people putting in these giant bags of money. And her giving in the eyes of God was greater than any of that. That is the most real practical example I can think of. What Jesus has given us of someone who loved God with all that they had. And that's really and truly the challenge for us this morning. Are we going to do what Christ has called us to do? To love God with everything that we have. To love our neighbor as ourselves. and and Because that means we're not following Christ in a way that's going to be easy and comfortable for us. We're going to do it, and it's going to sometimes require sacrifice. We're going to be given up some things that are going to cost us something. We're going to feel it. But it's not going to hurt us to do that. We're going to be willing to do that because why? Because of our love for God and our love for other people. So that's the challenge this morning. What are you holding back from God? What is it? What's that area of your life? You're saying, yeah, God, you know, I'll love you with all of this stuff, but this one little part right here, I, I, I got to keep that for myself. I don't really want to give that up. You know, this is my whatever it is. You know, my vice, this is the thing I like to do. This is, you know, you can have all my other time, but this is the little bit that's just for me. What are you holding back from God? What are you not giving to Him? My challenge to you, you know, and maybe, maybe it's your whole life. Maybe you've never taken that step of trusting Christ as your Savior. Maybe that's what you need to do. I don't know where you're at. But whatever that is this morning, that's the challenge. To make that commitment this morning, to give God whatever that area is, whatever that thing is that, that you're holding back from Him. And, you know, it's one thing to sit there in your you know, in your seat and say, yeah, you know, we're going to sing these next few songs. I can say in my head, yeah, I can make that commitment. Sure, God. That doesn't necessarily require anything from us. So here's my challenge to you. Up here, sitting on these tables, I have a, a few coins that, that I, I have that are from Israel. I mean, so they're, they're like actual Jewish money. And none of them are like the little mites that they gave. None of them are nearly that old. They're Probably all worth about the same thing as what the widow gave. But um, the, the, the purpose of these is really just to be a physical reminder of a spiritual commitment that God wants you to make this morning. So if you're willing to take that step this morning and say, yeah, God, this is what I've been holding back, but I'm going to give that to you today. I would challenge you as we sing uh, these last few songs, to get up out of your seat and come down here and just grab one of these and take it home with you and then stick it somewhere where you're going to see it every day and hopefully be reminded about the widow who gave everything the way that we're called to give God all that we are. Let's pray. Father God, there are so many things that compete for our affection, that compete for our attention. 
But Lord, you have asked us, commanded us. It's the greatest commandment. It's not the greatest request. It's the greatest commandment to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God, I pray that this morning that you would help us to do that, to take that step, whatever it is that we're holding back from you. Change our hearts and our lives, God. Make us people who truly, truly love you and love others in a way that is unexplainable apart from your power at work within us. May we give you everything this morning and surrender it all to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.